All right. Am I on? Fantastic. Thank you, Tim. Uh, man, I, I just have to tell you, uh, I am so excited to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, I've been following along with you through the first and second Samuel series uh, really since the beginning. And so it's, it's a blessing just to be here this morning and then to get to, to preach God's word and to preach God's word as a part of the series. It's like, it's like Christmas morning for me. I mean, it is fantastic. So I'm just super grateful to be here. I texted Tim a couple of weeks ago. Uh, as Tim mentioned, I work for Worldview Academy. We had a conference this weekend in Winter Gardens, uh, so just up the road. And, and he said, well, why don't, you, why don't you come preach? I'm like, well, let me look at my schedule. Uh, but so excited to be here, so excited to, uh, to be with you guys. Uh, Tim, I'm super grateful for you, for your friendship. Uh, it's funny to me how the Lord sometimes orchestrates friendships. I met Tim four or five years ago. I mean, everything before COVID is just four or five years ago. Um, I don't know if you feel like that, but it feels like a lifetime ago. Um, but I met Tim. He brought a, a group of students from Trinity uh, to one of our camps at, at Florida State in Tallahassee. And Tim and I didn't really connect too much over the course of the week. We shared a couple of meals with some other faculty from Worldview, but we really connected after camp and just has has been a great friend. So thank you for your friendship. Uh, It is great. Kim, thank you. We love your family and uh, just really grateful for you guys too. Our our family, uh, as as Tim said, my wife Angela, and we've got three kiddos, uh, Drew, who's 13, Maddie, who's 12, and Ryan, who's 6. Uh, and hopefully I'll get to share a little bit about some stories about them this morning. Uh, but we have, we've come to Trinity several times, and so lots of familiar faces. Uh, this really, in many ways, feels like home for us. Uh, we love being here. My wife is very uh, bummed and upset that she's not here this morning. Uh, but I send greetings from her, from our family. Uh, we're just, we're really grateful for you guys. So I wanted to give you just a couple of updates, and, and I know that that's not why we're here this morning, but uh, one, just an update on our family. Our kiddos are, are getting big as they do. Uh, my son, oldest, is super proud of the fact that he's taller than his mother. Uh, he's about to go into high school. He doesn't realize that really was not much of a feat. She's five one and three quarters, she would tell you. Uh, so we're just doing all the things with the kids, and uh, just a really blessed season, um, but also rel- recognizing that that season in many ways is, is going to be changing soon, and so just relishing every day that we have with them. Uh, Angela is doing well. Uh, she, so our youngest, who's six, almost seven, he'll be seven in a couple weeks, is in first grade, and so she's had a couple of years uh, they, to uh, sort of evaluate what she wants to do with her time and just has, has really taken to writing and, and has been sort of working on that craft and has written a, a Bible study, a, a biblical literacy study on the book of Philippians uh, last spring that, that we're excited about, and just she just continues to be involved with our local church in, uh, in Georgetown, which is just north of Austin. So uh, family's doing great, Worldview Academy. Uh, as many of you know, uh, we do camps for junior high and high school students, uh, training them in biblical worldview, apologetics, and servant leadership. Uh, hold them all over the country. Uh, many students from Trinity have, have come and uh, was just talking uh, to Tyler actually this morning about 
kind of some of his experiences at camp, and it's just a blessing uh, to be a part of that ministry. Uh, we have had a lot of transitions over the last several years. Uh, got a new executive director in the fall of 2020, which was a, a fantastic blessing to the ministry, a guy named Mike Shutt. So if you're familiar at all with Worldview Academy, you may know that name as a, a longtime faculty member. And uh, we, we navigated covid I mean, as well as you can as a summer camp that holds camps on college campuses in the midst of a global pandemic. Uh, and so we navigated that all right and have, have come out. And really, the Lord has just blessed us in some incredible ways. Uh, we've been involved with the ministry uh, for about 16 years. And uh, this is the healthiest we've ever been as a ministry. And so just uh, definitely praising the Lord for that. And And now we're really... Camp is still a, a big focus for us, but we also want to uh, explore new ways that we can come alongside and just be a resource for, for families. Um, I know that there are plenty of challenges, even just sort of what was talked about in the announcements, plenty of challenges that, that we face as Christ followers in the midst of this culture, uh, in the midst of the moment of the culture, uh, crises and, and issues that our, our students face. Uh, but but we face those as well, and so we just trying to uh, explore ways to be a resource through podcasts, uh, movie movie guides, movie discussion guides for families, uh, monthly conversations, things like that. But camp is still a big part of what we do, and uh, so we get to travel the country uh, holding these week long camps on college campuses. So we're coming back to Florida this summer. We're super pumped about that. We'll be at uh, in Lakeland at Southeastern. Um, so excited about that, but that's not why you came this morning. You didn't come to hear me ramble on, uh, about that. So we're going to dive into, uh, the word of God and, and, uh, just be reminded of, of who he is and, and his work in our life. So let me pray for us and then we will dive into the word this morning. God, we're grateful for uh, just a moment to gather together with one another, to gather together and to reflect on and to study your word. Lord, would you speak to us this morning? Would you uh, not let these words be from me, but God, would you uh, speak through me this morning? Uh, Thank you for your word. Thank you that you've made a way for us to know you and for us to be in relationship with you. Uh, We are grateful and uh, just grateful for this time this morning. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, so this, the title this morning is The Better Way, and we have been in uh, First and Second Samuel, and listen, I, I'm going to say we this morning because I feel like I've been right here in this series with you, and so if you don't like that, sorry about that. But uh, we, we've been in First and Second Samuel and we've really seen, as, as Tim and Christian have, have said over and over, we, we've seen really the tale of three kings, right? Israel has, has demanded or, or has requested a king of God because they want to look like all the other nations. Uh, they, they get Saul, right, who looks like a king. He looks kingly. Um, and that doesn't work out real well. He is not faithful to the Lord. Uh, and David is anointed king, He does not look like a king. Uh, In fact, Jesse does not even bring Samuel in front of David uh, at first. But yet we're told he's a a man after God's own heart. Uh, And then there's the third king, right? The the better king, 
King Jesus, who, who despite the dysfunction, despite the disarray uh, that these stories point us back to, uh, that, that, that there is, in fact, a better king. And so we've been in sort of a tough section of the story. Uh, as I was looking at the text and preparing for this time this morning, I was grateful to the Lord that we were preaching 2 Samuel 14 this morning. <laughs> Uh, and not Second Samuel 13. Um, so Tim got to cover that last week, and uh, it's been a tough stretch of Scripture. Uh, we've seen David continue to sort of embrace this comfort, this prosperity. Uh, we'll see this morning he, he continues in this pattern of passivity as well. Uh, and, and as a result, there are consequences for that. His family is in disarray. Uh, his son Absalom uh, has, has committed murder and has fled to Geshur. Uh, David really has done nothing about it. Uh, and he continues to operate in his perceived strength of his flesh. And so this morning we're going to read a story uh, about deception and manipulation. Uh, we're going to read a story of, of a couple of, well, several people relying on their own strength, the, the strength of their flesh, uh, and we're going to see the king and those around him continue to show their flaws. Uh, and that story, in part, is meant to point us to the fact uh, that there's a better king. Uh, the people are left wanting a better king. Um, and so we're, we're going to highlight that this morning, the, the otherness of that third king. So in, in our text, in, in 2 Samuel 14, uh, we're just going to start in verse 1. It seems a, an appropriate place to start this morning. And uh, we're just going to start with three verses this morning. It says, Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. And so Joab put the words in her mouth. And so we, we pick up the story, right, with David in, in the midst of his comfort, prosperity. He's, he's longing for his son, Absalom. And, and likely there's, there's this, this tension that he feels, right, because he knows what God's word says ought to be done for murderers. Uh, we see that in, in Genesis chapter 9. We see it again in, in Numbers 35. That the, the penalty for murder is, is death, right? The shedding of blood requires the shedding of blood. And yet David uh, has not brought justice against Absalom. He's not offered forgiveness to him. He has continued in this passivity that we have seen him in. He looks to be a far cry from the man after God's own heart, that we were first introduced to. Uh, we also have Joab, who's the commander of the army, and, and we'll see later in, in this chapter, in verse 20, it says that he's looking for an opportunity to change the course of things. He, he's looking for an opportunity to change. We might say that Joab is, is trying to help in a way that he wasn't necessarily invited to help. I don't know if you can relate to that. I don't know if you've ever tried to help someone that hasn't necessarily invited you to help. And if you're married, you might want to just keep looking at me. Don't look at your spouse right now. Probably going to be better, right? Because I know for me, I have tried to help 
the person I try to help the most when I am uninvited is my wife. And she will remind me that I've not been invited to help in this particular situation. And so we see Joab is inserting himself because he wants to change the course of things. He wants to help. He's got a plan. He's got a a good way forward. And then we see this this woman from Tekoa uh, described as a a wise woman uh, from this this region near Bethlehem, south of Jerusalem, uh, probably about, about 10 miles. And the scripture doesn't necessarily say what makes her wise, but there's something in her background, something that, that counts her as wise. And it's possible that the scripture is also just sort of drawing attention to the fact that she's not acting very wisely in this passage. She's, she's going to be an, an active participant in this deception uh, and likely put herself at risk as a part of that. Uh, And so the scene is set, right? The drama is about to unfold. The performer's in place. Joab has constructed what he thinks is a a good plan. And he's given the woman two instructions, right? He's he's told her how to mourn and the story that she ought to tell. And then he's he's told her not to anoint herself with oil, right? And we're going to see as we go throughout this passage some similarities between chapter 14 and chapter 12, right? Chapter 12, Nathan has a narrative for David, but we're gonna see some key differences as we go along as well. And so what, what, what do we make of this instruction not to be anointed with oil? I, I found that interesting. And, and while the scripture doesn't specifically say, I think there's a lot we can understand from the scripture as to why maybe we're not anointing, this woman is not being anointed with oil. And, and I think it tips us off to the fact that this good plan of Absalom's might, might not actually be that good, right? We see several indications in scriptures of, of why we anoint with oil. In James chapter five, if we're sick, right, we're to call on the elders of the church and they're to pray over us and anoint us with oil, right? The, in Second Sam, or I'm sorry, in First Samuel 16, when, when David is anointed, he's anointed with oil by Samuel, the, the prophet, uh, in Leviticus chapter 8, Aaron is anointed and the tabernacle is anointed, right? There, there's this, this holiness, not that the oil itself is holy, but the God who is God over the oil is holy. And so it makes me think of times in my own life where, where I've sort of identified a line in the sand, right? And I've said, this line is sin, if I cross this line, that is sin. And, and so I've identified this line in the sand, but I don't want to cross the line. But yet, in the midst of not wanting to cross the line, I'm willing to walk right up to the line. I'm willing to lean over the line. Okay? It reminds me of, of a child, right? A child who's in the kitchen, and you tell them, don't, don't touch the stove, it's hot. Well, they had no interest in touching the stove before, but now they found out it was hot. And so... They might not touch it. My children would all touch it. Um, But they might not touch it. But if they don't touch it, you know what they're going to probably do? They're going to come up as close to that pot as they can. They're going to put their hand as close as they can to that line without actually touching the pot. And we we do that in in our lives. I do that in my life. If if we look at lying and say, well, well, lying is a sin, That's the line that we draw in the sand and go, I don't want to lie. I don't want to cross that line. But yet, I'm willing to walk right up to it and tell the half-truth. 
I'll tell a white lie, right? But I don't want to lie. I just want to get as close to that line as possible. And hear me this morning, if we're asking the question, how close can we get to the line, we're asking the wrong question, right? We're asking the wrong question. The better question is, how can we maintain fellowship with our God? How can we grow and nurture our relationship with the Lord that, that we walk away from that line? And, and I sense that that's what's happening here in the text, that there's this, this line that Joab doesn't want to cross with this woman, but yet he's willing to walk right up to it. And we do that in our own lives all the time. The better question is, is how do I grow in my relationship with the Lord? How do I grow in faithfulness? And so Joab instructs this woman, and it's so interesting to me in verse 3. It says, Joab put the words in her mouth. And if we look back at chapter 12, you can, you can turn back there for just a moment, right? Chapter 12, we know David had Uriah killed. Uh, he'd taken Bathsheba as his wife, and Nathan was confronting him with a story about a rich man, and the rich man slaughters this poor man's only lamb. And David begins to burn with anger at this man. And so if we pick up in verse 6, it says, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And then Nathan turns the tables on David, and he rebukes David, and, and the text says, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And he goes on to, to tell of the works of God. But, but don't miss the difference here. In chapter 12, Nathan is filled with God's words for David. In chapter 14, this wise woman is not filled with God's words for David. This wise woman, this unwise woman, is filled with Joab's words. And that's a key difference. It makes all the difference. Right? And that really is point number one for us this morning is that this better way that's available to us through Christ, this, this better way with a better king is built on a dependence upon the Lord. It's a dependence on the Lord. It's not an independence from the Lord. And yet, that's not what we see here illustrated as the scene is set. And so we, we then go into the performance. The performance begins in, in verse 4. The woman lays out her story of being a widow who's lost a child, and she's concerned about the name of her husband being perpetuated, and, and likely her comfort as well. And so if we pick up... Uh, we'll just start in verse four. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, save me, O king. And the king said to her, what is your trouble? And she answered, alas, I'm a widow. My husband is dead and your servant had two sons and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant and they say, give up the man who struck his brother that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. 
And so she, she lays out her story and, and she's concerned about her husband's name being perpetuated. And we, we see in Deuteronomy that, that God is also concerned about that. God w- doesn't want the names of Israel to be blotted out. Uh, Deuteronomy 25.6 addresses this. If, if a man dies, right, his widow is to marry uh, his brother so that that deceased man's lineage can continue. Now, some of you might be thinking, wow, I'm glad we're not still under that law, right? But, but the text continues to go on, and, and it tells what to do if, if the brother doesn't want to marry the widow, and then if the next brother doesn't want to marry the widow, and the next one, and the next one, and it ultimately ends, right, in order to, to satisfy, if there's conflict about it, it ends with taking off a sandal and spitting in someone's face. Love Hebrew laws. Love it. Uh, and so, so we see that God, God cares about the perpetuation of the names in Israel, but there's something more going on here in the text. And so David responds to this woman in, in verse 8, essentially promising that he will pronounce judgment on this case. In all likelihood, David was wanted time to contemplate the best way forward, maybe the easy way out, because he would have recognized the similarities in this woman's story with his life and his family. But the woman is not satisfied, and she asks David to make a proclamation, to make a judgment now. And so David responds a second time by promising protection for her We pick up the story in in verse 10. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. And so David responds by making a proclamation of protection, but that isn't good enough for the woman. See, the king has not dismissed her case. She she has him. And so she goes a step further. I, I would say if, if we're talking about that, that imaginary line, that she is well beyond the line as she goes on into verse 11. And it's stunning to me what she says, because she says in verse 11, she says, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. She's asking him to invoke the name of the Lord. And, and the word for invoke here is, is this Hebrew word, zahir. And I didn't really say it right, because Hebrew, you got to do the like throat gullet, so it's got to be like, right? I just didn't want to spit on anyone. Uh, so, but it's this idea of, of calling to remembrance, calling to mind, re- remembering. She's asking the Lord, she's asking David to ask the Lord to remember her. I mean, the audacity of that as if, as if he forgot her. And yet, even still, we, we talk about the third king who's present. And I think even in this moment, we get a glimpse of the grace of our king, the better king, to this woman. She does not want to invoke the name of the Lord. The Lord knows what she's doing. The Lord knows of her deception. But yet, when we operate in this place of independence from the Lord, it becomes easier and easier to continue to operate in the flesh. The next step becomes even easier than the last one. And before we know it, we are way beyond where where we wanted to be. 
but it starts with a heightened view of ourselves. We, we think we are more capable than we are and a diminished view of God. It's a heightened view of ourselves and a diminished view of the Lord. And so let's, uh, let's read, in, go back to the text here in, in verse 11. And so David says, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And so David makes an official oath. He makes an official pledge to her by the Lord that he will protect her. And, and Tim and Christian have talked throughout this series, and Josiah and others have, have talked about the, the fact that this is a narrative, right? This is a narrative, the, the genre of literature is narrative, meaning it, it's not telling us what we ought to do, it's telling us what has happened in this story. And, and the narrative doesn't necessarily tell us all the details of the story, right? We don't necessarily know what color the drapes are in, in this room or, or whether they were curtains, right? We don't know who else is in the room. We, we don't know uh, what time of day it is or what, what the weather was like. But, but know that anything that God wanted us to know from this story is in the text, right? Anything that God wants us to know is here in the text for us, and we see clearly that David does not go before the Lord as he makes this judgment on the woman's case. He chooses instead to continue to operate in the strength of his flesh, in a position of independence from the Lord. And so we might ask, well, why, why do we do that? Why do we operate in the flesh, David is a man after God's own heart, and yet we see him do this here. And it, it really is a reflection of what we believe about ourselves and what we, are, what we believe about God. Because if we're being honest, oftentimes we think we can do better than, than God. We think we have a better plan, or, or we don't like God's plans. They're too difficult. It involves too much sacrifice, too much waiting. Right? Our way is better. Our way is easier. And I think John chapter 15 has something helpful for us this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip to the right to John chapter 15. And we're just going to read a few verses here of what it looks like for us as, as we, uh, the, the contrast between operating in the flesh versus operating in dependence upon the Lord. So John chapter 15 says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does, not, that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing." Right? Jesus is the vine. The, the better king is the vine. We are simply the branches. He's the sustainer, the protector, and the source of life. We are completely dependent upon him. And without him, without the vine, the branches wither. But how easy it is for us to forget that. Because we think we can bear the weight of the vine. We, we think we are made to bear the weight of the vine, but, but we are made in the image of God to image God to a watching world. We are not meant to bear the weight of the vine. And so we, we see, as we flip back to our story here, 
uh, that the woman then, then goes on to rebuke David. So, so she has, has gotten what she wants. David has, has made a vow that he is going to protect this woman because of her circumstances, and the woman is going to proceed to rebuke David and to, to call him more or less to bring Absalom back. And again, we see a lot of parallels here with chapter 12. But the key difference is that these are not the words from God. These are Joab's words spoken by this unwise woman from Tekoa. And the woman points out some things to David to try to persuade David in the flesh that she ought to do this. In in verse 13, she says that he is essentially an enemy of the people for not bringing Absalom back, the, the favored one. She goes on in, in verse 14 to say that we must all die. We are, we are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God will take away life and he devises means that the banished one will not remain an outcast. And so she essentially is saying Amnon was going to die anyway. Let's not, let's not hold this against Absalom. Let's bring him back. And so we see David continue in his passivity He does not grant forgiveness to Absalom, but he also doesn't bring justice. And so point point number two for us this morning is that the better way that's offered to us is is not about us. It's not about the things that we want. We exist as branches for the sake and the pleasure of the vine, to bring the vine glory, right? We exist to bring the Lord glory, to bring the better king glory and honor. We exist to bear fruit so that the vine is made much of. I mean, when's the last time you saw a fruit tree, uh, maybe a mango tree, an apple tree, an orange tree? You walk up to that tree and you think, man, what mighty fine branches that tree has. No, if it's a great tree that produces delicious fruit, you think, what a great tree. But how often we redirect our attention, whether that's even just within our own hearts, towards us as branches. So point number two is that the better way that's offered to us is not about us. It's about him. And let me just say too, as as a caution, we must not just assume that as Christ followers, our ways, our intentions are always that of the Lord's. We we need to constantly be, be questioning, examining our own hearts why are we doing the things that we're doing so now now we get to act act two and if if you're looking at your watch thinking wow okay we just got to act two i thought tim preached long uh don't worry act two is a little bit shorter here um so don't don't be afraid but but act two we we see a pivot here in in verse 18 because the charade is done Right, David identifies the, the fingerprints of Joab on this story that the woman is telling. And so we, we pick up in, in verse 18, the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my lord the king speak. And the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered and said, as surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these things in the mouth of your servant in order to change the course of things 
Your servant Joab did this, but my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. And so don't, don't miss that. To, to paraphrase what this woman just said, she said, Joab did not trust you as king. He did not trust God as king, so he took matters into his own hands. He took matters into his own hands and they got what they wanted. Joab and this woman are going to get what they want. But church, we shouldn't want to get the things that our flesh wants us to get. And David, of all people, should, should know this. He literally just walked through this. And yet we see him continue to operate from a position of comfort and prosperity. We see his passivity continue. And we have to be careful, uh, Tim mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but we have to be careful that we don't sit here in our self-righteousness and go, David, what a terrible sinner. Right? Because the outright rejection of God doesn't start with outright rejection of God. It starts with that heightened view of ourself and that diminished view of God. Uh, it reminds me of a, a conversation I had with a good friend of mine recently. Uh, it's a good friend who, whose daughter is in college, and she recently came home and, and communicated to her parents that she was walking in sin, and that, that she didn't see it as sin, and that she was going to continue to walk in the way that she was walking. And my friend was recounting this, this story to me of this just heartbreaking conversation, just this heavy conversation with his daughter. And in the midst of this conversation, he gets to the point in the conversation where he asks her, he says, well, do you still believe the things you were taught? Do you believe in the authority of the scriptures? Do you trust the Bible? And she paused for a moment and, and she said, yes, I believe in the Bible. But I also believe in personal revelation. And I work with students all over the country. That is the mantra of this moment. That is the mantra of this culture, right? We, we want God's word, but we want it to fit into the box that we want it to fit into. We, we want it to fit into the agenda that we have, right? It, it's stripping away authority from God and giving ourselves authority that we were not made to have, right? I mean, it's literally, it's no different than Thomas Jefferson with his Bible where he cut out all of the parts of it that he didn't like. You can't, you can't take part of it. You, you take the whole thing. This is God's word. We are not God. We do not get to decide what the word is. Hebrews 2.1 says that we need to pay attention lest we do not drift or, or lest we drift. Right? And, and church, I think that's a good word for us this morning that we need to wake up and pay attention so that we do not drift. Because what we're seeing here in this text and what we've seen in the last couple of chapters is David's drift. His drift away from the Lord. And so we see David bring Absalom back from Geshur. Absalom, I, I think, is interesting, right? He, he flees to Geshur uh, where his grandfather is king. So he literally, he flees to his flesh rather than to the Lord. 
Absalom has, has shown no sign of devotion to the Lord, no forgiveness, repentance. He's shown self-focus and self-exaltation. But he's also got great hair. We see that from the text. If there was a hall of fame for the greatest hair in Scripture, Absalom apparently would be in it. But we just might see the Lord use even Absalom's pride, his hair, against him here in text to come. And so Absalom is, back, is brought back to Jerusalem. Uh, and, and yet he's, he's kept away from the king. He's kept away from David. Uh, and we, we don't know exactly why, but I think the, the text tips us off to this, right? Because in, in verse 24, well, in, in verse 23, it says, So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. And so we, we see that, that David has brought Absalom back as a work of his flesh, in independence from the Lord rather than dependence on the Lord. We know that the law has required or, or would require Absalom to be put to death. And, and perhaps Absalom is, is apart from David really as a partial fulfillment of, of Nathan's prophetic words in, in chapter 12 when, when he pronounces judgment upon David and says that your wives are going to be taken by your neighbor in the broad daylight of the sun before all of Israel. Maybe that's in partial fulfillment as we'll see to come in, in chapters to come. But likely David is just again illustrating his passivity. He, he does not want to and, or does not choose to bring forgiveness to Absalom, to grant him forgiveness, and he does not bring justice against Absalom. And so Absalom continues to attract attention because, well, he looks like a king. He looks the part. He looks kingly. Israel still has not learned. We've seen this before. Right, and so we come to the, the final act here in verses 28 through 33, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this chunk of scripture for us. It says, so Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, see, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. Sorry, I have a hard time reading this text without shaking my head at it. So Absalom's servants went and set the field on fire, and Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered, Joab, behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to still be there. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king and if there's guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. As you read this text, if you're like me, you might just shake your head, right? But this is the fruit of operating in the flesh. This is the fruit of the depravity of the situation, of the, the ridiculousness that we see in David's family. 
a man after God's own heart, brings his, his son, who's a murderer, back. Joab, the commander of his army, murderer. David, at least an accomplice in the killing of Uriah. Right? Adulterer. I mean, where are we right now? Is this the man after God's own heart? But there's no pretenses for Absalom, right? There's no backroom deals. He's not trying to be cute. He's burning the dang field on fire. Right? He's not concerned about the field. He's the son of the king. He murdered his brother, and yet he's under the protection of the king. He was given a field next to Joab's. He is literally untouchable. And so Absalom deserved, or demands restoration or death from the king. And David seemingly offers some level of forgiveness but without justice. And so the, th- the third and final point this morning is, is the better way is, is actually better. And I think sometimes we, we miss that. We, we see the better way as a sacrificial way. We see the better way as a way that we are commanded to pursue, but in the heart of our hearts, we don't actually believe it's better. We see here an illustration in chapter 14 of walking in independence from the Lord. Joab wants what he wants. David is walking under his own power. The story's here in part to point us to a better way. You were designed to be a branch and not the vine, and that is better. We have limitations Right? We might say it another way, you are not God. I am not God, and that's good. Well, I, I want to be stronger. Well, you weren't designed for that. You're not designed to have the strength of the vine. Well, I, I have imperfections. I don't like them. Well, you weren't designed to be perfect because perfect people don't need a perfect Savior. We're made in the image of God to image God to a watching world. Dependence is not a weakness. It's a grace from the Lord. See, we serve a God who, who grants forgiveness and brings justice in a way that no flesh could do. See, we had a problem, and it was sin. We had wandered from the Lord. There needed to be justice. There needed to be payment for the sin. And so God, in his wisdom, in his grace, sends his son to die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin, to to bring justice upon the sin of the world. And then forgiveness is offered if we confess and if we believe. The better king did something that we cannot do in our flesh, that Saul cannot do, that David cannot do. The better king brings justice and forgiveness. And that forgiveness is offered to us this morning from the better king. We were made to image God, not to be God. 
And I think 2 Samuel 14 highlights that for us. The better way is a way of dependence. It's a way that's not about us, it's, it's about him. And it is actually better. Let me pray for us this morning. God, we're grateful for your word. Lord, thank you for the reminders, just even here in this text, of who we are and who you are. God, that we do not have to pretend to be something we are not. That in the midst of our imperfections, in the midst of our limitations, Lord, we cry out to you and we rest in you. Thank you for the gift of salvation that's offered. Not because of the works that we've done, but because of the work that you have done. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray that you would speak to them just in the quietness of this moment and that... uh, God, that they would come to trust you and that they would live a life of hope and purpose found in the better way with the better king. Lord, we're grateful for you and thank you for our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.